Good morning. Welcome to another episode of Wabish. Uh, my name is Dane Wormwell. I'm one of the co-founders of NIW. And hopefully I'm qualified to speak to you today on the grounds that I'm also one of the co-inventors of the Kaizen program. Now, why this subject? Um, we're really just trying to educate people on uh, what Kaizen is, what it isn't, so that when we see blogs out there with various people talking about Kaizen, some of it is well-informed, some of it not so much. Most of what we see out there on the negative side is groups who have vested interests who want to sell whatever they want to sell, and Kaizen's a threat to that. So, of course, they're going to say negative stuff. Uh, because we have done a lot of traditional premium finance over the last 22 years, one of the biggest mistakes is to look at what traditional premium finance is and just assume that's what Kaizen is. They are entirely different risk classes. And so from our point of view, uh, we don't think traditional premium finance is a good solution for emerging wealth. It's a great solution for those of a you know, 10 plus million net worth. So why would we create a program if it wasn't suitable? So what we had to do is dramatically change the risk profile. So we refer to Kaizen as hybrid financing because the client is paying a fair amount of out-of-pocket themselves. And it's designed to be a solution that addresses a particular market that's the emerging wealth. So we define as 200,000 household income or above, uh, with some situations for 100,000 when there's employer funded or something like plans going on. If you just think about it practically, uh, particularly in a group or employer setting, it is a very rare CFO who is willing to put their balance sheet at risk to uh, fund a deferred compensation plan, an obligation they already have, so kind of double downing on their balance sheet, if that makes sense. It's very unlikely that they're going to do that, and so traditional premium finance as a solution would not fit. So when we started with Kaizen, the whole point was de-risking the program. So what is the uh, accusation, if you like? Uh, the three main ones we'll respond to today is that IULs will never perform, that caps will come down but not go up, and that the performance or the projected performance of the Kaizen program is highly speculative. So let's remind ourselves of why we're interested in doing what we're doing. So often advisors say, okay, how much are you willing to make available for a given problem? Let me tell you the best way to invest it. Great. But they're fundamentally missing the key point here. The key point is that in most situations or most applications that Kaizen has been considered for, the amount of budget the client has available is insufficient to achieve the goal. So if I need three bottles of water to walk across the desert, the fact I have one bottle makes it highly unlikely I'm going to make it. And so unless you can address the capital funding shortage, um, it doesn't really matter which is the better investment. So we're not trying to have an argument about which is a better product. We're merely interested in how do we attract capital on extremely favorable terms that is at a very low risk profile 
to have the critical mass of cash working for us to achieve our objective. Now, the vast majority of people who are purchasing Kaizen are, are purchasing and focusing on the accumulation of cash value within the product versus just a death benefit play. Although it's a very efficient tool for buying death benefit too. So we're going to focus on that. And as has been mentioned in previous uh, blogs that we've done, having the amount of capital is infinitely more impactful on whether you're going to achieve your goal. So 74% of what determines whether you will have in this, and let's talk about the accumulation side, enough money to hit, hit my supplemental uh, retirement goals is going to be driven by how much capital. Only 26% of the outcome is going to be driven by investment return. So we're really trying to focus on the key issue, which is the underfunding. Which asset or which product is the best way to attract that capital is the sole and only focus that we were interested in. After all, if I have a stock portfolio, I can do a margin loan. I can get extra capital, but it's highly speculative and very risky, and so most people aren't willing to do it. So we're really focused on which is the best product platform to allow us to do that in, a, in a, as low a risk way as we possibly can. Now, let's just talk about some difference in product features because the main uh, proponents, if you like, or the main uh, protagonists in this particular uh, situation where, are where people will look at different products and say, if I want to accumulate cash, how do I do that? And so let's look at what most people do today. They might say, hey, I've got a bonus. I want to put some of that aside. I'll put it in a stock portfolio. Now, clearly, a stock portfolio is not life insurance, and they are entirely different asset class with different focuses, and we have to say that. But it's purely an investment. It will have no minimum guaranteed returns. The growth will track the market or the investment portfolio that you've selected. We would expect a well-designed stock portfolio to outperform bonds or fixed income by about 4% on average. Obviously, everybody's plan will be different. Your costs, however, are your asset fees and taxes. Now, if we switch to life insurance as a product, we may look at whole life products, for example. There's the whole um, market talking about be your own bank, all those sorts of things. It's a life insurance product first and foremost. Its growth is, is really achieved in two ways. You have what I'll call the guaranteed growth, which whole life has some very, very good guarantees. But the accumulation part, the part that people will be your own bank take uh, income from is really coming from the dividend, which is a non-guaranteed feature. And the dividend is comprised of returning of overcharges, so they charge you the guaranteed rate, and refund the difference between the guaranteed rate and their actual experience. They credit you the minimum guaranteed return and then add a credit towards the end of the year based on their actual investment experience and they'll throw in some of the profits for the year of, of the company. The problem is it's bundled up into a box and you don't know the breakout of that, but that's the component of the dividend. Your costs in this, in this are clearly your insurance costs. Uh, it's very tax advantage. You just will have insurance costs as you would with any other insurance product. Its return profile, if you look at your cash value growth versus premium net of costs, 
will be very similar to fixed income. And that's because it's very conservatively designed. That's one of its great features. It's a conservative product with lots of guarantees. The other protagonist that's being looked at quite commonly is this product called the Index Universal Life, or the IUL for short. It again is a life insurance product with life insurance costs in it. Its growth characteristics are very different. It has a minimum guaranteed return, so that's attractive, but its growth is more speculative because it's tied to change in an index. It's not investing in an index, it's just measuring change. If the index is positive, you get a positive return that is then locked in. That's attractive from a lender point of view. It also reduces my uh, volatility risk. Volatility in this case is the ups and downs of a market index. If the market index is negative, you simply record a zero. So it has a very, very different return profile to the whole life, which is largely a fixed income profile, and to a, a stock portfolio, which will track the market index like the S&P or whatever. Its costs are contract costs, just like you would expect, but its return profile is about 2% above fixed income. And that's data that's been published by almost all the carriers that have actually got the product. And I make the product and make the distinction of carriers that have actually published data on their experience versus groups that have never done one and have an opinion on it, which is very different. And the reason I make the point is because we would like to be data driven in our decision making about what is suitable. I cannot stress this enough from a NIW perspective, we are product neutral, don't care. What we're interested in is the best fit for the application. So if I was to plot these products on a risk spectrum, you could have very, very low risk products like cash or CDs. You could have move up the return profile and up the risk spectrum a little bit to like a whole life product or a universal life product, bonds, those kinds of structures. You have stocks, you have real estate. And IUL is kind of piggy in the middle between uh, a fixed income product and stocks. And Kaizen, because we're using some leverage, has some incremental risk, but it is incremental based on the way we design it, which I'll cover in a second. Now we get a lot of accusation on are the projections accurate or not? And the first thing I need to draw your attention to is the regulatory environment where you're required to operate it. It's not a discretionary position. If you look at the historical average return of the carriers that have published data, the IUL is averaged a 7 to 8% return. The regulatory environment we're under, however, is typically illustrating a 5 to 6% return. So it's already um, fairly substantially in a holistic view below its historical averages is the projection, and that projection goes forward in perpetuity for the rest of your life. So illustrations per se, do not take into account the underlying economics that drives the product. In this case, predominantly interest rates. When you're taking policy loans, there are additional regulations uh, for those in the industry, actuarial guidelines, AG49 and AG49A, uh, that restrict the projections on what you can take out of the policy. There's a whole bunch of reasons behind the thinking of why the regulations go this way. But the bottom line is the statistical output of the product versus what you were able to show from an illustration point of view. The illustrations are about 50% below what the statistical numbers say they should be. So that breeds conservatism in the design. So I'm not really taking a view on whether it's good or bad. I'm just pointing out that the illustration regime that all IUL carriers are required to follow 
is showing a projected position below where the historical and economic data would suggest. So to say we're going out of the gate with an aggressive design is not looking at the reality behind the scene of what is actually happening here. Now let's also look at the, uh, the illustration worlds versus the reality. I mentioned earlier that in an illustration, your economic drivers never change. So in other, in other words, interest rates will never go up or down. Uh, indices will do exactly the same returns every single year until the day you die. Clearly that's not realistic. Now I mentioned earlier on that the biggest single driver, statistically speaking, is underlying interest rates. So the way an IUL works is that they use the bond return of the portfolio, they call it a general account, they use the bond return to buy an option. So we'll call the amount of money you have available your option budget. And if it's a bond portfolio, the return, now this is a lag and there's a, we'll do another podcast on that to explain that in more detail for the geeks out there. The reality is bond yields are driven by underlying interest rates. So high interest rate environment, bonds have a great return, low interest rate environment, a sucky return. And we are coming out of a low interest rate environment and the general account, because it lags, is still reflective of a low interest rate environment. And it's saying it'll do that forever. So if you look at this chart, if underlying interest rates go up, then what will happen is the bond yield will start to go up over time. I mentioned it's lagged which in turn means the illustrated expected return goes up, again lag. So in this chart, you'll notice the underlying interest rate goes up before the actual product performances. The illustration reflects none of that. This comes up a lot when people are looking at finance designs and saying, hey, interest rates are going up, the sky's falling. Look at the underlying economics, except there's going to be short-term disruption, but long-term the, the risk premiums are very constant when measured over time. So if we look at this slide, this is just a normal distribution curve for those who were still awake in those boring statistical classes at school. Normal distribution curve is showing a range of likely outcomes. So if you look at your 401k or any financial projection you're getting, they typically start with the midpoint or your 50 percentile position. You've got a 50 percent chance of more and a 50 percent chance of less, and that's a kind of projected outcome. Most illustrations do the same thing. As you start to move to the left of the graph, you're starting to say I'm being more and more conservative. So I mentioned the regulatory environment. That starts to shift you down the more conservative side of the spectrum. Now Kaizen starts with a what funding, it starts with this position. What funding can I provide in an extreme black swan position without creating a loan breach? So we take the conservative position we then move it further along the left of the graph to the even more conservative position and say, is this an extreme black swan event? Now that has been checked by multiple carriers as both a black swan event and we are being draconian within it. For those of you who like that sort of stuff, our stress testing data is published. In that black swan condition, we say, what's the leveraging ratio I can apply? So this is fundamentally different from premium finance, which tends to look at the leveraging ratios in normal conditions. So much, much different. And because of that, we're also leveraging less than in traditional premium finance. So less uh, leverage and more conservative. 
So the risk spectrum is, in my, you know, the way I sort of describe this, this is like going down an escalator versus bungee jumping. You're going down with both, but what I have is a very different risk profile. Once we have that, we then have projections that are starting from that conservative position. So when you have people saying, well, these are all speculative, they're kind of making it sound like it's like an S&P return profile. It is not. It's a much, much narrower range of outcomes, and it's taking the more conservative data as your start point. So we get a lot of uh, attacks saying, well, why aren't you using whole life product if you're so conservative? And let me be clear about whole life. It is an excellent product for what it was designed to do. It has excellent guarantees. Its cash surrender value is equally valuable to lenders. It's a very, very secure, just like IULs or universal lives. Any of those fixed products have excellent properties as far as a bank is concerned. It's basically cash as far as a bank is concerned. Here's the downside. You can be too conservative for you to have the ability to outpace the loan enough. Banks worry about two things from the pure credit perspective. Is my loan secure? And is there a very high probability of it being repaid? So it's the repayment part with whole life that's more difficult. Now, I can get around that if I have the client pay more and more and more out of pocket. The downside is that's exactly what the client doesn't have. They have the one bottle of water, not the three, as we mentioned earlier. So the only reason we're not using whole life in this particular application is not because it's not a great product. It's just not a good fit for this application. So what we need is we need a little bit more risk, which is the profile of the IUL. We don't want the risk of a security portfolio because otherwise the bank would have to underwrite you for a loan, which you're not in Kaizen. So we just want just enough risk to increase our probability of being able to repay the loan with a high probability outcome. So it's that. That side is why we're making the product selection, not because we think one is better. So by analogy, the industry gets caught up in, uh, they're almost like a religious debate. You know, my side's wrong, your side's the devil kind of thing. And it's nonsense. Both are good products, they just have different applications. So in my head, it's like the analogy of which is better, the hammer or the saw. Well, it just depends what you're doing. You know, generally speaking, trying to hammer a nail in with a saw doesn't work that well. So use the right product for the right application. So let's deal with the next uh, stuff that's out there that's just flat out wrong. And it's, it's, it's great if you're selling fear. The caps or the upside amount you're able to capture on the market index in an IUL will come down but never go up. Now, what drives caps? I mentioned earlier interest rates. Why is that? Interest rates affect the bond return the portfolio has. Now, there is a lag effect and it will happen over time, but that's my option budget. So in a low interest rate environment, my option budget goes down. As rates rise, my option budget goes up. Now, from a carrier point of view, if you're an actuary, you're pricing a product that may stay on the books for 40, 50, 60 years, and you have no idea what interest rates are going to do over that period. So you price the product so that your policy charges, the insurance costs, all those good things are where you make your money. You're neutral on interest rates from an actuarial point of view. That translates into the option budget is in the carrier's mind your money. They could care less whether it's big or small from a pure profit point of view. However, 
One of the great things that makes life insurance attractive to banks is there's no mark-to-market risk on those bond portfolios. What do I mean by that? When interest rates go up, the sale value of the bond goes down, particularly longer-term bonds. You don't have that problem in life insurance, but the carrier does. So if they don't raise caps and interest rates go up like they are now and you surrender the product and enough of you do it, they take a huge loss. So even if you're the biggest cynic in the world, the one thing you know the carriers will do is look after themselves and it is in their interest to raise caps as fast as the portfolio rate allows them to. So the next thing about this driving caps is, okay, if interest rates go up, my option budget goes up. The next thing we hear about is, well, the volatility in the market is going to make the price of the option cancel that extra budget out. That's not actually factually correct. It is correct from a year-to-year point of view, but not over time, by far the biggest driver is option budget. Statistically speaking, based on all the backtesting we've been able to do, it drives 85 to 90% of the outcome. However, in addition to that, a lot of the carriers are way smarter than me um, and are way in advance of my thinking, so they went to low volatility options, which is just a fancy word for saying my option price doesn't go up much or at all when volatility changes. So what that translates into is my option budget goes up, my price of the option is the same, I get more upside. And this is changing annually. There's a lot of people who don't understand that the cap is reset on your policy anniversary based on the prevailing conditions. So they went down because interest rates were falling and as they've sold the bonds from 15 years ago and replaced them last year you know, at nothing return, their portfolio rate fell, caps fell. Caps have been falling or dividends have been falling since the 80s because of the interest rates. As rates start to go back up again as they are now, you'll start to see them improve. And that's not just on IUL, you'll see dividends improve and all the rest of it on fixed products but it's over time. Now let's just deal with the last one about speculative outcomes. I've talked about the conservatism of the design, but let's look at the underlying uh, product itself. On the left-hand side of the chart, you've got the S&P returns without dividends since the 1930s. And either it looks like my heart rate on a really strenuous piece of exercise, or it's a highly speculative index that has not changed in terms of that volatility or riskiness since 1930. Mathematically, no change at all. But you get all the downside of the market and all of the upside. That's part of its charm. Well, not the downside. Um, With an IUL, you have a floor. So let's take the downside out off the table altogether from an investment or market return perspective, index point of view. You still have policy costs as you have AUM fees with your portfolios. But you have a zero floor based on the bonds inside the product. The upside will be capped depending on the option budget and the option cost. So if you look at that, and I just drew a line just above 10%, that's kind of on the low end still. It's higher than today, but low end statistically speaking. You can see your range of outcomes are extremely um, less volatile. And statistically, you either get a zero 30% of the time or a cap out the majority of the time until interest rates go up and whereupon caps will start to be high enough to capture all of the upside. So when I have a conservative design combined with a narrow range of possible outcomes, it is not a highly speculative position at all. It's just incorrect information to say that. So let's deal with the the final thing that this is all too complicated for people to understand. 
So on the left, I have a black, well, I was gonna say black box, but it's actually a black circle, right? And that's just the dividends of a whole life. You know it's made up of refund of overcharges, uh, extra crediting beyond the guaranteed credits, and some of the profit, but you don't know the makeup of it. Tough to know what's going on there other than what the macro number is. You get a dividend of A. You don't know whether it's investment return or just refunding of overcharging. On the other, on an IUL, you're measuring change in market index per year. Now, we are dealing with uh, intelligent people. You know, households of 200,000 for the most part are doctors, uh, CPAs, attorneys, all that kind of profession who make investment decisions and business decisions all the time, measuring market change and understanding that when the market's down, I get zero. When I get the market going up, I get a positive. I don't think is any more complicated than trying to work out what's going on in that black circle. I think it's disingenuous to the client that's being targeted that they cannot understand any of this. If you can understand the intricacies of a mortgage, you can understand this. However, what is true is the industry, like any other industry, uses different jargon, and that's all it is. A little bit of uh, investigation on Investopedia or whatever will tell you the answers to these questions. Look, if the fundamental issue is maintaining quality of life, either through the protection features of the life insurance or of the accumulation features of the life insurance, Having more capital working for you is fundamental to achieving or optimizing the chance of achieving that outcome. We believe we've been able to create a solution originally designed for ourselves. You know, personal need is the mother of all invention. We designed it for ourselves using our 22 years of knowledge on how to de-risk plans and how to attract bank money on a very attractive and least risk profile possible. Needs risk to work. That in turn can be used to enhance the cash value growth because we just have more capital available, which in turn we can use to take policy loans to supplement our quality of life or increase death benefit depending on your application. Now, that is not right for everybody, but we think it's a very elegant solution that is appropriate for those people who feel that the risk return profile fits their desires. It is not designed to be a very speculative program. It is not designed to be aggressive. It is designed to have a high probability of successful outcome. If you haven't taken the time to learn the actual facts and data that are driving those decisions, we think it's disingenuous just to make commentary. I mean, what we're trying to do is educate people so they can make an informed decision. As a potential client, I would always prefer to be given that information so I can look at it, make a choice about whether it's right for me, then listen to the opinions of people who have not taken the time to even look at what we're doing. But that's just me. So to conclude, hope that you found this informative. Please don't forget to hit subscribe or like and um Call us back with any questions that you have that this podcast might have provoked. Uh, we have the data to back everything that I've said today up, so we're more than happy to share it with you.